my strength is failing. The end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Why? Ten thousand reasons and forevermore. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Come on. O oh, my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before. O oh, my soul, worship your holy name. Do you know what makes that mean something and matter? Jesus. And not just Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And not just His resurrection, but the promise of our resurrection through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Hey, that changes that song altogether. And that song is not myth or fairy tale or fable. It's more than fantasy. It's not just wishful thinking. It's the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, was buried and, say it with me, raised again on the third day. Praise God. Jesus is alive and we'll live too. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor. It's not Easter yet. Yeah, but you know what? We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Not just on Resurrection Sunday. And you know, we believe this. This is the core of our conviction. This is the bedrock of our faith. And surprisingly, we're in a pretty decent-sized company of Americans because, believe it or not, while things like, for example, oh, uh, belief in God and prayer and people taking the Bible literally and attending religious services and identifying as religious and being affiliated with a religion, all those things are on the decline. Yet, according to studies, 80% of Americans still say they believe in an afterlife. And that's up over the last several decades from only 73%, now 80%. And you know that's not all that surprising, and we're not all that new. Because from the earliest of human understandings, we've longed for something bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves, something more to life than just life, something called the afterlife. Anthropologists may not all agree on what it looks like, but they can't disagree that from the earliest of human understandings, there was this longing, a desire for it. That's why men carve their visions on the cave walls or put into burial plots items like, oh, for example, uh, weapons or food or other necessities for the journey to the afterlife, whatever it was they thought it might be. The ancient Egyptians, of course, are classic examples with their elaborate pyramids in preparation for the journey to the afterlife. But it's not just an ancient notion. Today, in our modern and contemporary world, all the world's major faith groups, all the world's major religions, and an awful lot of minor ones, 
Well, we may not agree on much, but on two things we agree, all of us. Jews and Christians and Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, the traditional African religions, even the Wiccans, for crying out loud, we all agree on two things. That there is more to this life than this life. And secondly, how we live this life impacts the life we will live in the afterlife. Can you believe we all agree on something? By the way, that's a good place to start a conversation with anyone of any other faith right there at our point of agreement. Now, some might argue that this is just a religious thing and it is a man-made, human-made, wishful thinking kind of thing. Certainly not in the conversation of medicine or of science, but I beg to differ, in fact, because there is a growing interest in science and in medicine for what might possibly be beyond this life in some kind of an afterlife. In fact, uh, that the human person is more than physical and material and the mind is more than a brain. That there is something to the human consciousness, to, to what it is to exist as a person that transcends what can be measured with instruments on dials with gauges. I'm talking science and medicine now, a growing interest over the last 20 years. Why? With the growth in neurology and its study of the brain and how the brain fires and how the brain works. We know things now we've never known before. And with our ability now to resuscitate or to bring back from the brink of death, we have these stories piling up called near-death experiences where people tell amazingly profound experiences, what they saw on their way to the other side. I'm no expert on that. I won't claim to be. I'm, in fact, not an expert on almost anything. I'm a pretty good eater. Pretty good at that. I might be an expert in southern fried chicken. I don't know if that's my only thing. But, but here's what's interesting in the conversation that, that many medical and scientific minds have now begun to open to the possibility there is some kind of human experience that transcends the natural and the physical. Even in the scientific circles, I'm reading that the afterlife is now no longer considered as unreasonable after all, as perhaps it was just years ago. And while I'm no expert, i got one with us today. I want to introduce you to Dr. Gary Habermas, who is here with us today, a longtime professor at Liberty University, historian, philosopher, theologian, author, apologist. He's now the director of research. He's a professor in apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University. He was here yesterday with our Spanish apologetics conference and graciously agreed to stay and speak English today, which is his actual first language. And since he's here, and since he is a prolific writer and researcher and lecturer on resurrection in the afterlife, let's bring him for a conversation. Would you help me welcome Dr. Gary Habermas today? Dr. Gary, join me if you will. Come on up here, brother. What a privilege and an honor to have this guy. He is all over the country and beyond, lecturing, teaching on resurrection. And we are delighted to have him here with us today. I, I, I was reading about him earlier in the week when I understood that he was coming, and I discovered, Dr. Gary, that you actually have been on somewhat of a journey yourself, and in the early days might even have considered yourself to be somewhat of a, a skeptic with regard to rever resurrection and the afterlife. Tell us about your journey. Well, I... Uh... 
was raised in a Christian home. But we don't have a mic on you, brother. We got two mics, and neither one of them are working. Let me see if we can bang one, shake one, beat one. Guys, want to try another one? Hello? There you go. Ma'am? See, shaking things works. It's sort of like the mind. It's like the mind working through the brain. Well, I uh, was raised in a Christian home. Let me shake it again. I'm going to shake it again. Hello. See? We rehearsed this. Did it go out again? No. No. Good. The shaker's already here to do this over and over. I'll reshake it anytime we need to. Yeah, the microphone will Yeah, hold it up here. That way you won't block the antenna with your massively muscular hand there. There you go. Perfect. Is that right? There you go. Okay, good. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, John. Now, what was I going to say? No, I'm kidding. You were going um, to tell us about the time you didn't think you believed. Right. No, I, re- I was raised in a, in a Christian home with uh, Christian parents, but the closest person in my life uh, died when I was eight years old, and I didn't know it at the time, but that kind of plummeted me a few years later in my uh, teen years to questioning my faith, and I rejected inspiration of Scripture when I was in college, and I was told by a Christian who later became a friend of mine at the time, I didn't know what he thought. He was a big guy, looked like an offensive tackle. And he came up to me and he said, I heard you deny the uh, inspiration of Scripture. And I said, I do. And he said, man, you've got seven demons in you. And I thought, demon, fight, demons, fight. He looked like he wanted to fight. This is an inner city Detroit. And uh, where it, I was it's, raised. It's a, actually, it's a witnessing technique. It yeah. is. Just. It is. And uh, you gather people around, and then you start witnessing. <laughs> no, he just turned and walked away. And so this launched me on, on years of study and checking out other religions and going to religious places and uh, doing some thinking for myself. And Christians were trying to help me out of it. Why don't you study this? Why don't you study that? And I... I didn't think any of the answers were very good, to be frank with you, until I realized one day that if Jesus was raised from the dead, Christianity would follow. But here's the key. I didn't know if he was raised from the dead. But if he were raised from the dead, that could bear the weight of Christian truth. And that started me on a lifelong study of the resurrection. I am uh, currently writing a, a magnum opus on the resurrection it is now at uh, 4,400 pages, and uh, it's been a journey. I'll be glad when it's over. <laughs> so what's interesting about your story is, is, is unlike uh, some of Christian uh, folks, you, you didn't believe because you believed. You didn't believe because someone told you to believe or guilted you or shamed you for not believing. You really searched out the evidence for the resurrection and became right. a believer. Right. Yeah, I... I used to I would talk to people and I'd say, um, hey, if, if this book is inspired, then Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, everybody admits that, if this book is inspired. But if this book is not inspired, now where does that leave us? Well, you may be surprised, but if this book is not inspired, Jesus was still raised from the dead. You go, well, how do you know that? Because if you use only those verses, and this has been my life pursuit, if you use only those verses which are evidenced enough that atheist New Testament scholars will accept the verses, those texts are enough 
to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. You get a fuller body of text if you accept everything, but if you only accept the minimum, you still have a resurrection. You know, a lot of uh, people uh, say of Christians that we have blind faith, that uh, we have to check our brains at the door and just embrace this fairy tale and fable. But you're saying that faith in the resurrection and belief in the afterlife is actually reasonable. Very reasonable. You could bring in uh, football or hockey here. I was the ice hockey coach at Liberty for nine years. Um, There's a saying in hockey, you know, if somebody gets smart with you, you can go hockey on them. Um, (laughs) There's a side of me that says I'd like somebody to say that to my face because a lot of people scoff. A lot of people say, ah, that's mythology. That's Wizard of Oz. You want me to believe in Narnia? Well, guess what? In the most recent book on near-death experiences, written by medical doctors, published by a university publishing house, they estimate that up to 30 million people in North America and Europe alone have had near-death experiences. So when someone says to me, there's no such thing as the yellow brick road in the uh, Emerald City, I'll say, uh, talk to somebody who thinks they've been there. Now, that doesn't mean they are there. That doesn't mean they're there, but they think they're there. You can't convince them there's no city and there's no place. There's a, but some of this, there's, there's evidence. A person has no measurable brain or heart waves, and there's dozens of these cases, but they watch something up above their body, and they report something from the parking lot, and they talk about two cars hitting each other, You can check the police report out, but you know they didn't move from the platform here because the paramedics were in here, and the story checks out. There's over 300 cases of people who report data that the data checks out, but as far as we know, the instruments say there's no brain or heart information coming out of them. So what's interesting about those NDEs, and of course they're near-death experiences. That's correct. Uh, and what they really do is give evidence to science and medicine that there has to be more than, than the human existence than the physical and the material. Exactly. Well, talk to us about evidence for the resurrection and the afterlife uh, that, that sort of brought you to uh, a reasonable conclusion that historically this actually happened and is true. Yeah, I, I tell people there's, there's a lot of fascinating evidence. By the way, those of you who follow the Shroud, I gave a lecture on the Shroud of Turin yesterday. I had co-authored a book on the Shroud of Turin with uh, the, one of the scientists who did the testing in 1978. The latest, when I got back to my hotel room, the latest study came out that said the dating on the Shroud looks like it's wrong. And you say, well, who published that? A Baptist church? No, how about Oxford University? This came out last night, and it's been sent around all over the place because they studied the scientific results, and there were some errors in the math that was reported in the 1988 test. That's that. But I still think the best evidence for the resurrection easily is, I call it a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose argument. Again, if the Bible's the Word of God, Jesus has been raised, and Christianity's true. If the Bible's not the Word of God because you're an atheist New Testament scholar, but you're going to grant me... Six facts, six facts in the New Testament because the evidence is good. Those little pieces of data are enough to say Jesus died on the cross and the disciples had experiences that they told everybody, I saw the risen Jesus, and no other explanation works. 
So I think the best evidence is early eyewitnesses. By the way, skeptics who do not believe the Bible's word of God, who are not Christians, believe we have reports on the resurrection from one year after the cross, from one year later. That's a, that's a real strong point of how we do history. Yeah, and the only way we have any history, certainly ancient history, is somebody was there, they wrote down, recorded, or told, if it were further out, uh, what happened, and then that was passed. The criticism about Christianity is that we've invented all of these events in the life of Jesus, his miracles, and certainly his resurrection, well after the fact, sort of the whisper game, if you know, it changes with each person. But in reality, if you compare the history of Jesus and his resurrection to any other evidential support for history, where does that stack up? Well, it makes you sound prejudiced, but if you just want to talk about the data, no other founder of a major world religion even claimed to be God, even claimed to be God. Buddha was an atheist. Nobody, none other, no other founder even claimed to be God. Now, if Jesus claimed to be deity, and his father would have to have raised him from the dead because dead men don't do much, right? We know that much. Dead men don't do much. His father, he said, my father's going to be the one to raise me from the dead. Why would his father raise him from the dead if he were a heretic? I can't think of anything more heretical than these two comments. I am the son of God. I have the same nature he does. I'm the son of God. And second comment, where you, what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. That's pretty bombastic if it's not true. And yet God acted upon his dead body. Why and how? Not because he was a heretic. So we have to come up with an explanation of how Jesus was vindicated by being raised from the dead. And as I said, we don't, we don't brag about heresy, and we don't raise heretics from the dead. No other founder of a world religion, their believers don't even believe they were raised from the dead. This is a unique event in history. And it happened and was witnessed by hundreds of eyewitnesses who wrote it down so early with regard to the events and then copied those early documents faithfully so that what we have today is a record of the actual events of the resurrection in the same way we have history of any other kind today. Right year. after they happened. Within right a year, even an atheist will give you within they a year. They will grant that. They will grant that atheist New Testament scholars or non-Christians, say Jewish New Testament scholars, they're trained, they're experts in New Testament. Yes, they will tell you. In fact, one of them, this isn't normal, this isn't every, every day, but uh, a Jewish scholar named Pincus Lapid in 1983 wrote a book called the resurrection of Jesus, a Jewish perspective. And he concluded that Jesus was raised from the dead. You say, well, what about him? Did he become a Christian? No, because his view, and this view is fairly common in, in a, a large number of Jewish intellectuals, the view is that Jews come through the law but that Jesus was the prophet for the Gentiles, and Gentiles come to God through Jesus Christ. Mm. They say, well, that's everybody in the world except for maybe 40 million people. That's just, I'm not saying that's, that's what we believe. I'm just saying that's their view, but that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you're going to get that close and concede this event, it bears some looking at. Well, and, and I, I think we would agree that 
in some cases, no matter the evidence or how compelling the evidence, some people choose not to believe in spite of the evidence. Exactly. It still takes faith to believe. You, you can't force belief. It takes faith not to believe. It does certainly take faith. Not, maybe some would say ways. more faith to disbelieve. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was saying the early service today, the, the weapon, if this is a weapon, of a lot of unbelievers is simply scoffing. Anybody can say, what if? What if you're wrong? Do you, you know how I like to respond to that? I go on a lot of college campuses. I like to say, what if I'm right? And they say, well, all you said was what if you're right. And they didn't even realize that all they said was what if you're wrong. And I say, if you want to talk evidence, let's talk evidence. And the person thinks about it for a second and sits down. Mm -hmm. They don't say much. Mm. So, you know, I, we just have a really, really good case. When, you, when we can use their data and say that on your facts, Jesus was raised. I think that's really hard if you don't believe in Jesus. Why, to answer the question, why did God raise him from the dead if he were some sort of heretic? Now, on the other hand, if what he taught was true, now all of Christianity follows. Yes, amen. Well, I have one more question, and it's a segue into what I want to cover in the remaining time we have. I came across years ago in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, something called, I'm not sure he called it this, perhaps the argument from desire, yep. meaning that, that there's something within the human person that desires something, and if they didn't desire it, and these are innate desires, not artificial or contrived, uh, these are innate natural desires. T tell us, just summarize for us, and you've dealt with this some as well, what is the argument from desire? Now, Lewis does call it the argument from desire, and some philosophers have even taken Lewis's argument and made a formal argument into it. But Lewis had this strong desire to live beyond this world. This is where his fantasy comes from. Uh, Paralandra, the scientific uh, novel, the science fiction, uh, Narnia, seven books, and so on, uh, because he experienced this deep, deep longing for eternity. Why? Because his mother died when he was the same age as my great-grandmother died. Uh, he was eight. And he believed so strongly at that time, being raised in Belfast, Ireland, he believed that God would raise his mother from the dead. Uh, first of all, he thought God would heal her, and he didn't. Then he believed so strongly he thought God would raise her, and he didn't. And that bothered him so much that he walked away from belief in God mm -hmm. because of a little boy who didn't have a mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, became, he became an atheist. But that argument has stayed with him all his life. And when C.S. Lewis study groups take surveys on what idea influences you the most about Lewis, the most popular answer is his longing argument, mm. that we all have a longing for another world. We have a longing for ultimate beauty. We have a longing for ultimate fellowship. We have a longing to live forever in a wonderful way. And you said the, the numbers have gone up recently, right? Yeah, uh, they, they do. Be you know, belief in God, interestingly enough, reading the Bible, praying, those continue to sort of trend down a bit, but not belief in the afterlife. Even right. belief in heaven continues to either remain steady in all studies or even in some, even increase some. Yeah, and I've got to think near-death experiences in the news have something to do with that. They certainly one, have. One of my good friends just retired from a distinguished professorship of psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He has published 
100, over 100, peer-reviewed medical journal articles on near-death experiences. So anybody who says, that's a bunch of baloney, the, the, the scholars don't know about that, I say, go read the medical journals. So in this argument from desire, we naturally desire food because there is food that desire can be met. We naturally desire uh, friends because we can have friends. Now, we don't naturally desire to fly like Superman because men don't fly like Superman. That's a fantasy. But we naturally desire something to drink because that desire ultimately can be satisfied in something to drink. Lewis is saying, and this argument I think says, that there is a desire within us Sometimes met, sometimes unmet, sometimes frustrated, but it is a longing for something beyond ourselves for, I think, what he called transcendent joy. That's correct. Where do you think that comes from? Well, the, the ones who make the argument and turn it into a, a formal philosophical argument, what they argue is what we really need, not what we hope for, but what we really need really exists and that you, they'll say that you can't think of any examples of what you actually need, like air, like food, like water, whatever we really need really exists, and death is not normal, it's not natural. And so we have a desire to live forever. And then when you see the evidence start coming in on, you know, if you think there's evidence for God, if you think there's evidence for near-death experience, if you think there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, now, as you said, the evidence starts backing up, and you're saying, hey, this is a pretty good world. This looks pretty good. Yeah, so, in a, so sort of an agreement. The evidence comes into alignment and agreement with the desire that's innately within us. That yeah, we it almost makes desire. you want to say, I knew that. Amen. I knew that. Amen. Would you help me thank Dr. Gary Habermas for being with us today? God bless you, doctor. So appreciate you. Appreciate all the hard work you've done. Chris, thank you for helping us out here. Uh, in our conference yesterday, and I want to take you to the Bible, to the Old Testament of all places, and see if we can't answer this question together. Where did that desire come from? Where is that longing? What's the source of that innate natural longing? You have a Bible, Ecclesiastes, not Ephesians. We've been there so long, I can't say any other book of the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. I I want to read this verse to you. See if this doesn't sound familiar. It says this, he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. Maybe God put that longing within us. After all, we are created by God and for God. And our ultimate joy, ultimate beauty, ultimate perfection, ultimate good is beyond us. And so we long for it and we desire it. And since we don't find it in this world, we long for it on the other side, in the afterlife. Well, you say, Pastor, it's interesting you make an argument for the afterlife in the Old Testament. We've been told that the New Testament is the basis upon which we base our faith and trust in the resurrection, of course, of Jesus, but then our resurrection as well. And our entire concept of heaven in the afterlife is built on the New Testament. I would say not not so fast. The Old Testament is solid in favor of the afterlife. Can I just take you for a few moments as we begin this seven-week series to the Old Testament and hit a few highlights, if you will, to sort of build a case for the foundation upon which Jesus and the apostles taught about resurrection and the afterlife. But some would say afterlife, Old Testament, it's not together, but in fact it may not be prominent, but it is certainly present 
Keeping in mind, of course, that in the Old Testament, they don't have the benefit we do. We don't have this body of evidence. We, we have evidence. We have witnesses. We have the Bible. They could look back to the empty tomb. They had to look forward and to look ahead. And look forward they did. Like Job, for example. One of the oldest books that we have, one of the oldest stories that we have. In fact, if you're reading with us through the Chronological Bible this year, you might have been surprised when at the end of Genesis 11 there was a break and Job was inserted in between Genesis 11 and 12 before Abraham. So we're early now. We're way back. And what do we read? That in Job's misery, he asked this profound question. Job 14, 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? Do you hear the hope in that question? The possibilities that might exist, the longing for something beyond himself. I mean, if you lived the life Job lived until that point, you'd be longing for some sense of it all, for something more than it all. And Job certainly was. And not many chapters later, in chapter 19, Job comes to this triumphant conclusion in the course of his search for sense and meaning. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job, old book of the Old Testament. There is not only the longing, but then comes the belief, the conviction, the firm foundation of Heaven, eternal life, whatever he called it, seeing God. Moses hints to it, I would say. He doesn't say much about the afterlife in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's more focused, many believe, on this life. On living and doing good because it's good to do good and because good pleases God. Many Jews today live in the same sense of believing that better to focus on this life and let God handle the next life. And yet it's interesting that Abraham is said to have breathed his last, died in a good old age, old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Maybe I'm just speculating here. Maybe that phrase, gathered to his people, which Moses said of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Moses, and of Aaron, maybe that's just a nice, polite way of saying he died. He was gathered to his people, or or he was buried in the tomb of his ancestors. Maybe that's what it means, or maybe even Moses, though he doesn't deal with it directly, it's not prominent in the Torah, Maybe even Moses views something beyond where we can sort of get back together again and see heaven as a family reunion and a homecoming celebration. And of course, there's David and his conviction. You can't miss this. King of Israel, shepherd psalmist. Do you remember the story of he and Bathsheba and the child that was born of the two died? In the days preceding his death, he mourned, he fasted, he wept, but then the child died. Those who attended to David thought, well, if he grieved this deeply while the child was alive, who knows how deep into despair he's going to fall when the child dies. But instead, David arose, he washed his face, he took nourishment, and he began to move on with his life. And they said, what's the deal, David? You should be grieving worse after death than you were before death. And you know what David said? Let me read it to you from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. I will go to him... He will not return to me. David was saying, there's nothing I can do to bring him back, but I'm going to follow him and be where he is. 
In Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, David expresses joy and security in the Lord when he says this, He, the Lord, will not abandon me in the grave, nor will you, God, let your Holy One see decay. David said that initially, of course, of his own confidence beyond the grave. But Peter quoted that passage you may remember in Acts chapter 2. He said this, David spoke of the resurrection of Christ many years before Christ. That he would not be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay, Peter said. God has raised this Jesus to life. You said, Pastor, that's New Testament. No, the New Testament understanding of what David said in the Old Testament affirmed and confirmed David's belief in life beyond the grave and God's power over life and death. Then there's, of course, Psalm 49, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. There's another verse in Psalm 49 I want to share with you, but let me just unpack Sheol for just a moment. It's the Old Testament concept of the grave or of the dead, the realm of the dead. It's described as a dark and gloomy place, a place where the dead are separated from the living and from God. They are forgotten there. There are verses, psalms, scriptures that emphasize that. Along with the fact that Sheol was the final destination and place of no return. Job said so in chapter 7. By the way, the wicked are noted to be in Sheol in the Old Testament, but so are the righteous. For example, when Jacob believed Joseph had died... In his grief, he said this, Genesis 37, I shall go down to Sheol to my son to mourning. So it's somewhat of a neutral place, this Sheol, the wicked and the righteous there in the grave. But then this, in the Old Testament, also describes the power of God over Sheol. Here's that Psalm 49, verse 15, after David's lament for Sheol, he says this, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Did David believe in the afterlife? You better believe David did. The prophets as well, I mean, they didn't just believe it. They declared it. They believed definitely in the power of God over Sheol. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Hosea chapter 13, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. And then Hosea said, see if this sounds familiar, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does that sound familiar? Add to that Isaiah 25 verse 8, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Does that sound familiar? Paul quoted those Old Testament prophets in his case for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read it. Sort of as a preview of where we'll be in just two weeks. Paul writes, when the, imper- when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's New Testament, but what it is is the New Testament understanding of what they meant in the Old Testament when they said, there is more. There is more. And so, yes, there's a developing hope and expectation 
even in the Old Testament, before the resurrection of Jesus, that death does not have the final say. That when it's over, it isn't over. God gets the final word. And where death puts a period or an exclamation point, God erases it and adds a comma and then continues with the sentence and the story even into eternity. But the drop the mic slam dunk of all Old Testament passages about resurrection in the afterlife comes to us from Daniel's confirmation in chapter 12, verse 2. Perhaps the clearest and most confident statement in all the Old Testament about life after death. He said this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Very late Daniel, long after Job longed for something beyond the grave, Daniel says, yes, in fact, and let me tell you something else. There is an accounting there, and there is a separation there, and there are rewards and there are punishments there. Which is a great segue into the New Testament, into Jesus' teaching about death, the grave, resurrection, life, and heaven. Hit pause on that for next week, and let's save it. And we'll pick up next week right there with the teaching of Jesus on resurrection. But for today, let me close our consideration of the Old Testament afterlife resurrection again with this verse in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. But then he says, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So it does seem that there is a hope for and yet a frustrated desire for more. For something or someone beyond ourselves for God. Some people call that a God-shaped void. Have you heard that expression? That there is this place or space within us, deep within us, that God made within us for Himself. Because we know from the very first book of the, of the Old Testament that God made us for Himself to know Him, to live in fellowship with Him, to have an intimate love relationship to Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to bring Him glory, to fully experience perfect joy and complete and perfect satisfaction. God made us for that. There is that longing, and the frustrated aspect of that longing is called sin, the fall. But sin, you know, separates us from God. Sin separates. There's that longing that is frustrated or unmet. We try to meet it with things. We try to meet it with accomplishments. We try to meet it with all sorts of material things, people. We try to fill that hole, and yet there's that frustrated longing within us. And I'll tell you why. Because that space is made only for God. And until we know God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus... We will forever be frustrated in our longing for more. I want to invite you today to consider this question. Afterlife, what's next? What's next? You know, some people prepare and plan for trips, for events, for activities, for months. Down to every detail. How much more important is it us, for us to consider, to plan for, and to be prepared for what's next? Let me 
offer you a couple of quick thoughts as I close. Number one, remember, this is not all there is to life. In your soul, that is affirmed and confirmed. There has to be more. Secondly, prepare now for the more, for the life that you'll live then. This is one of those things you have to plan ahead on. And by the way, any religion, major religion in all the world at this point would say, amen to one, there is more, and amen to two, what you do now determines how it ends up then and there. But thirdly, we begin to diverge because we believe living now in faith and trust in Jesus is how to live not only then, uh, but here and now. Life eternal and life abundant. So I would challenge us all to consider over these next seven weeks to live in view of the life we'll live then. Because if God were to give us a hundred years of perfect health and wonderful living, do you know what that is compared to eternity and that all God has for us, planned for us, prepared for us? Let me show you. Not even that. It's just a drop in the bucket of eternity that has no end. 10,000 years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless his holy name. And finally, for those of you that just said amen with Michael, for those of you who believe this and don't doubt this, for those of you who have been convicted by this and convinced by this, for those of you who know where you're going because the Bible said so, the Holy Spirit has confirmed it so, the evidence has supported it so, and you are on board and on your way, listen to me. You are here on purpose. And that purpose is not to go there alone. Take somebody with you when you go. Take somebody with you when you go. I hope over these next seven weeks, we'll not only be affirmed and confirmed in our faith and trust and confidence in the resurrection and in eternal life, but that we will be compelled, more than just confident, to share that conviction with everyone we know. And I want to ask you to do this. Begin to pray today for the opportunity or the courage to share what you believe about what comes next with somebody in your world. Would you do that? Lord, this isn't just for me. This is through me for somebody else. And share that good news with them. Would you bow with me in prayer? Could we just for a moment say, Lord, I pray that somebody will be in heaven someday because you put me here on this earth on this day. Eternity will be different because I lived here and now. For somebody's life forever will be changed because you forever changed my life. You begin to get a vision of who that might be. God begin to show you a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. Maybe that somebody you don't even like anymore, never did. But you'd come to love them through Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.